I love that final song that we sang. That, that third song we just spent some time singing, Lord from sorrows, deep I call. You know, what, what, what better song to sing in the midst of, of suffering and, and talking about the topic of suffering than a song like that, Lord from sorrows, deep I call. There's a line in the second verse that says this. It says, when all that I possess is grief. When all that I have in my possession, when, when worldly pleasures are stripped away and all that I have is grief, God then be my treasure. Be my vision in the night. In, the, in, my, in my suffering, when all I see around me is darkness and tragedy and night, God then be the light. Be my hope and my refuge. See, that song is such a, a beautiful and powerful song that has drawn my eyes, and I know many other people in our church's eyes, to, to look away from our present circumstances and on to the person and the work of Christ. The last four weeks, we've, we've been walking through a sermon series titled God and Evil. And maybe this is your first time here, or maybe you've been coming around for a little while, and, and you, you see a, a sermon series titled God and Evil, and, and the provocative nature of such a sermon series catches your attention. But as we've been walking through this sermon series the last four weeks, what we've done is we've taken the book of Job and we've examined what God's word has to say about some of the most pressing and difficult and challenging questions that life has to offer. We've asked and answered and tackled questions such as how is God sovereign over evil? How can God be a good and glorious and worthy God when so much evil exists in the world around us? When we face suffering, how are we to respond? If you're interested in, in hearing the answers to questions like these, you can go on our website, PillarSanAntonio.com. There's a sermons tab at the top right portion of the page. And you can actually find, you can go back and listen to these sermons that we've walked through thus far. But this morning, we're going to tackle a somewhat similar question. One that I'm afraid many Christians and non-Christians alike struggle and wrestle with finding an answer to. The question we'll be tackling today is this. Is suffering the direct result of a person's sin? Or does God have a higher, more redemptive purpose for your suffering? Essentially, when you boil it down, the, the question that we're going to be asking this morning is this. Why do we suffer? Church, you can rest assured that suffering will inevitably be a part of the Christian life. We've, we've walked through that concept for, a, for four weeks now. We know that suffering will be a part of the Christian life, whether you have suffered, whether you are suffering, or whether you will suffer in the future. Jesus himself tells us as much that suffering will be a part of the Christian life. And if we know that suffering will come, then it's important for us to have an understanding of why we suffer 
in the first place. So that whenever suffering does come, our faith can be rooted in the firm foundation of Christ and we won't be blown away like chaff on the threshing floor. So we're going to tackle this question of why do we suffer? Is it because we sin or does God have a higher, more redemptive purpose in mind for our suffering? If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn with me to Job chapter 4. Job chapter 4. Now there are a number of texts we could have read today. We're primarily going to be looking at the response of Job's friends. So we could have read the whole book of Job, essentially. But we're going to anchor our time this morning in Job chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. So I'm going to read the text for us. I'm going to pray and then we'll dive in and we're going to unpack what God's word has to say about this question of why do we suffer? So Job chapter 4, starting in verse 1. The word of God says this. It says, Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered, and he said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak knees. Or the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now, Eliphaz is telling Job, but now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence? And the integrity of your ways, your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. God of heaven, we, we need you. Lord, as we tackle such difficult questions as to why we suffer, and as we ponder the concept of suffering and the, the difficulty of our suffering, God, I pray that you would be glorified and honored. I pray that you would show us the glorious truth from your word, God. As we approach this topic, help us not to bring preconceived notions of suffering into this topic, but help us see clearly what your word has to say this morning about our suffering. Oh God, I need your help. As I as I preach this morning, Lord, I pray that you would cause me to decrease so that you may increase. Christ, would you receive all the praise and all the glory and all the honor this morning as we all collectively fall on our knees before the cross and we look to you, O Lord. Sanctify us by the truth of your word. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, the first time that the first time I read the book of Job, I remember reading these lengthy dialogues between Job and his three friends. These, these three friends are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. The first time I read the book of Job, it was in the King James Version, so it was already hard enough to understand at that point. But if you were like me, then you may have read through the book of Job, and you may have come away somewhat confused as to what's really being said here. You may have read through uh, Job's friend's response to his condition, and you may have come away somewhat confused. You see, because at face value, if you take what Job's friends say, if you, if, you just, if you lift Job's friends' counsel out of their context and you read them at face value, then the counsel that Job's friends give him, it's not necessarily wrong. See, at, at face value, in general principle, Job receives counsel from his friends that it, it's not necessarily theologically incorrect. You know, they, they don't say things that are necessarily wrong. Yet when you take Job's friend's words and you set them in the context as, as, as good uh, biblical readers that we are, we take the entirety of God's word in context. When you set Job's friend's response or responses in the context of Job's suffering, then it becomes painfully clear that their counsel is actually no counsel at all. Instead, we will see that Job's friends wildly miss the mark in their attempt to help their friend Job deal with his suffering. The counsel that they give Job is, is no wise counsel at all, but instead it's something that we should see that is, in, in a blanket sense, not wisdom at all. So this morning I want us to examine really the primary issue with Job's friends counsel as they attempted to comfort Job in the midst of their suffering. So if you're someone who likes to take notes or you're someone who just likes to have a general idea of where we're headed this morning, then the main point of the sermon or the sermon in a sentence, if you will, is this. Suffering is not always a direct result of our sin, but it is always ordained by God for our good and his glory. Suffering is not always a direct result of our sin, but it is always ordained by God for our good and for his glory. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going we're to take the rest of our time to unpack how that is the case. How is suffering not a direct result of our sin? Where are we going to see that Job's friends missed the mark? And we're going to close our time by looking at the, the way in which God is glorified in our suffering. And our suffering is ordained by God for our good. So I'm just going to encourage you to buckle up. We're going to dive in now. We're going to try to tackle this difficult question. So at the end of chapter 2, if you were to flip back a couple chapters... In the Job chapter 2, you, you see we're first introduced to Job's friends. We, we first are introduced to Eliphaz and Bildad and, and Zophar. And what we see from these three friends that they, that they have uh, somehow caught wind, they've heard of their friend Job's suffering, 
and they travel a great distance to be with Job, who had just lost everything. You may remember back to chapter 1, Job had lost all of his children. All ten of Job's children died and in one moment, in one instance, they were killed. Job lost all of his wealth, all of his possessions that he had. The, the things that made him wealthy, he lost them. His wife had turned on him and, and told Job, Job simply curse God and die at this point. Job had lost everything. And when we're first introduced to Job's friends, what we see is they travel this distance to come see Job. And they, they come and they, they simply sit with Job in silence. And they mourn with Job. And they comfort Job for, for seven whole days. I, I saw one commentator say that if, if, uh, if Job's friends would have simply continued to do what they did in chapter 2, if they would have just kept their mouths shut and stayed silent, then the book of Job would have been much shorter. But that's the picture we see in Job chapter 2. We see that they're sitting, in Job, or they're sitting with Job in silence. And, and if you've ever suffered before, or if, if you've ever been or walked through an intense tragedy, oftentimes all you want people to do is just come and sit with you, to come and be a listening ear or a, 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 a shoulder to cry on. And initially that's what Job's friends were. But we see in chapter 3, Job breaks this week-long silence. Job breaks this silence with an agonizing lament. You, you can feel the pain in Job's lament in chapter 3. Job curses the day that he was born. He says, God, why would you have allowed me to be born simply to live this life and suffer the tragedy that I'm suffering right now? Job asked God the question, God, why did you not just allow me to die in the womb? Why did you allow me to make it past childbirth? These are very raw and, 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 and difficult and, and emotional questions and, and things that Job is wrestling with, with God. And yet we know that Job doesn't sin against God by asking these questions. But for Eliphaz and for Bildad and for Zophar, the questions that Job was asking God, the things that Job was saying, was simply crossing the line. They could hold their tongue no longer. They, they heard, they, they'd sat with Job in silence for a week, but as soon as Job started asking God these questions, they could hold their tongue no longer. In chapter 4, Eliphaz, who's, who's, who's uh, thought to have been the eldest and the wisest of the group, Eliphaz is the first to speak regarding Job's lament and his present suffering. Look with me, look with me at chapter 4, verse 2. Eliphaz, he asks Job, he gives Job the courtesy of at least allowing him to finish his lament in chapter 3. And then Eliphaz responds, he says in verse 2, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet, who can keep from speaking? Essentially, Eliphaz is asking Job, he says, Job, if I intervene, I hear what you're saying. If I intervene, will you be upset with me? Will you be angry if I say the things that I need to say? Yet after hearing what you said, how could I not speak up and say something? He goes on in verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7, to ask Job the rhetorical question. He says, Job, who that was innocent ever perished? 
Or, or where were the upright cut off? He says, Job, you're a smart man. Chapter 4, verse 3 says, Job, you used to be the one who instructed people. You used to be the one who gave wise counsel to people. Now suffering has come to your doorstep. He says, Job, have you ever known anyone who was truly innocent? That, was go- that is going through the same thing that you're going through right now? Job, have you ever known anyone who's, who has suffered the way in which you're suffering and still maintained their innocence? Job's other two friends, Bildad and Zophar, they hold similar sentiments. They ask and say similar things. When Bildad chimes in in chapter 8 for the first time, he says, does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty, does he pervert the right? Saying, he says, Bildad's asking Job, he says, Job, if you're truly innocent, would God really bring about suffering? Would he pervert his own justice and bring about this suffering in your life? You know God doesn't pervert justice. God wouldn't bring innocent suffering to you. Zophar has an even more direct statement from Job. In chapter 11, verse 6, when we see his third friend Zophar speak up for the first time, Zophar simply says, Job, know then that God exacts less of you than your guilt deserves. He says, Job, actually these things, these horrible things that you're going through right now, they're actually not as bad as it should be for you. Your, your guilt actually exacts more of you. Talk about harsh counseling given the things Job was going through. That is what you don't say, that's, that's uh, in pastoral counseling, that's what you don't say to someone who's going through intense suffering. You see, for Job's friends, they had a particular way in which they viewed the world. Job's friends held to a strict worldview that claimed that suffering, any kind of suffering, any bad thing that happens to you is always the result of a person's sin. Stub your toe, must have sinned against God. Your children die, must have sinned against God. If, you, if something bad happens to you, you must have sinned against the Lord. You see, for, for Job's three friends, it was, it was an easy way for them to explain good and evil. It was a, a neat and tidy way for them to package up and put a bow and rationalize blessing and curse. You see, for Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, there was a simple one-to-one correlation between suffering and sin. The more severe a person's suffering, the more sin they must have committed against the Lord. Job's friends, they, they, they saw Job's present condition and they looked around and saw that all that he had lost and all that he was going through and they equated it to him harboring some type of intense and really bad unrepentant sin that God was just trying to get him to confess of and repent from. You see, it was as if, it was as if Job's friends thought of God as some type of cosmic vending machine or some type of cosmic dispensary. If you do good things, if you're pure and upright and you withstain from, or you withhold from sin, then good things are surely going to happen to you. It's like if you go to a vending machine and you put a dollar in and I hit E7, I'm expecting to get a bag of chips out. And on the flip side of that, 
The same was true. If, if you have sinned against the Lord, if you have done bad things, if you've done wrong, then surely God is going to bring bad things to your life and God is going to bring suffering to your life. If I put a dollar in the vending machine and I hit B2, I'm expecting to get a candy bar out. That was the way in which they viewed God. That's the way in which they viewed suffering. But friends, is that true? It's the most important question we can ask as we approach this topic. Is that true? Is that how the economy of God works? Is suffering always, no matter what happens, is suffering always the result of a person's sin? Well, the short answer is no. No, suffering is not always the result of a particular sin or set of sins that a person has committed. It's not always that result. It's where Job's friends missed the mark. They, they thought of suffering as this blanket state. They thought of God as, as simply having a one-to-one -one correlation between suffering and if you've done bad things, then suffering, or if you, yeah, if you've done bad things, then suffering is what follows. But you see, friends, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, they did not have the luxury that, that we have today as we are able to see the entire wisdom narrative of the book of Job. We're able to see from cover to cover in the book of Job to examine the life of Job. We even get to see things that Job doesn't get to see, the heavenly conversation between God and Satan in chapter 1. But we get to see things that Job's friends don't get to see. Because if you look back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, you would notice that the Bible goes to great lengths to show that Job has been upright. It says that Job has been blameless. Job is a man who feared God and turned from evil. God himself said that no one was like Job who walked on the earth. There were none like Job who walked on the earth. The Bible makes it crystal clear that Job had done nothing wrong. At least had done nothing wrong to deserve the suffering and the sin, or the suffering and the calamity that he was going through. Yet he lost everything. And for many of you here, that's the same question that you're wrestling with. God, I haven't, I don't think I've done anything wrong. Why have I lost everything? So it begs the question, and why was Job suffering? Remember the question we started our time with this morning. Is suffering the direct result of a person's sin? Or does God have a higher, more redemptive purpose and plan for your suffering? Thankfully, Jesus gives us a great answer to the problem of suffering in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, it says, we see that the disciples, they're, they're or Jesus and the disciples are, are leaving the temple. And as they're leaving the temple, they come across a man that, that the Bible tells us had been blind from birth. And the disciples, they see this man and to some degree they have at least some kind of pity on this man. They're, 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 they either have pity on this man or they're asking Jesus some type of question that only Jesus can answer. But they see this man in his unfortunate condition and they ask Jesus, they say, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? 
They say, Jesus, what sin was committed? Did, did this man sin in his lifetime? Or, or did, did his parents sin somehow? There was an early uh, uh, belief in some, some strains of Judaism that believed that if parents sinned, then that sin could be passed on if their child was in the womb. So they have this framework that asks the question, who sinned, this man or his parents? You see, much like Job's friends, when Job's friends were examining his suffering... The disciples saw the blind man's condition and they only had one rational explanation for it. Some particular sin or set of sins had to lead to this man losing his sight. Something had to have happened for this man to be going through such a thing. Don't we often approach our own suffering in a similar way? Don't we often ask similar questions? Maybe not as blunt as the disciples asked, but don't we ask some form of the same question in our suffering? When, when we receive the terminal cancer diagnosis, when the death of a loved one tragically happens, when the job that supports your family and puts food on your table is unexpectedly lost, when pain and anguish and suffering are a daily reminder to you, a never-ending cycle, our minds almost always wander to the question, God, what did I do to deserve this? What did I do to deserve this suffering? It's so easy to slip into a mindset that begins to ask God and put God on trial and say, God, what things, what did I, what happened in my life that I did that you would bring such a great suffering and anguish in my life? We begin conducting a, a spiritual inventory of some sort. And we start weighing the moral balance, asking God questions like, God, have I not done X and Y and Z for you? And this is how you repay me? I'll never forget the day that, uh, that Jared called me and told me that our good friend Clint Clifton had uh, tragically passed away in a plane crash. And after, after having this conversation with Jared, we sat on the phone and he and I cried together on the phone. I got off the phone and I went and told Laura what had happened and Laura and I cried together for a little bit. And after the initial shock of the news set in and I began to process what actually had happened, I remember thinking to myself, God, how could you allow such a thing to happen? I mean, here was our, 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 our friend Clint Clifton, who Keith had talked about the Praetorian Project. Our friend Clint Clifton planted the first Praetorian Project church. And that church went on to plant dozens of churches. That went on to plant dozens of churches. Clint was a faithful and humble shepherd and pastor who loved his people well. He poured out his life to raise up church planters and missionaries. He had a wife who loved the local church and, and who loved Jesus even more. He had children who were intimately involved in the life of the church, one of whom was about to get married a few months after he passed away and plant a pillar church. I began to ask the question, God, how could you do such a thing? How Did Clint not do X and Y and Z for you and this is how you repay him? This is how you repay his family? Why could this happen, Lord? 
I slipped into the same transactional mindset, the one-to-one transactional mindset that, that the disciples and Job's friends possessed. I thought to myself, Clint did good things for God, therefore good things should have happened for Clint and his family. But I was mistaken, friends. You see, in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of anguish and, and severe suffering, our tendency, tendency is to try to rationalize that suffering. Our tendency is to try to package up our suffering in our present circumstances and put it in a neat little box and put a bow on it. Because for us, if we can do this, if we can rationalize our suffering, if we can understand our suffering, then we'll be able, we think, to deal with it in a more efficient manner. And if, and if we can rationalize our suffering and deal with it in a more efficient manner, then ultimately we are able to deal with it in our own strength. That's where our minds wander in suffering. We end up trying to, to stuff God into a simple box by thinking that if I can merely start doing more good things, then God will stop allowing all of these bad things to happen to my life. God, if I'll scratch your back, then surely you'll scratch my back in return. I mean, this is, what, this is what Job's friends attempted to do with Job. In Job 22, 23, we see Eliphaz speaking again. Eliphaz says, Job, if you will return to the Almighty, you'll be built up. It's simple, Job, Eliphaz thought. All these things are happening in your life. If you'll just return to God, if you'll just scratch God's back a little bit, if you'll just do more good things for God, then surely you'll be built back up. If you'll tip the scales back in your favor, then God will surely restore you. You see, Job's friends believed that there had to be a, a reason for Job's suffering. That something had to cause or bring about this suffering. Because surely God, in God's wisdom, and God's purposes, and God's plans, surely he wouldn't be the one who brings about purposeless, innocent suffering. Dear friend, if, if you find yourself slipping into that mindset, if you find yourself thinking that if you can just do more good things for God and God will do more good things for you in return, if you have a transactional understanding of God's grace and God's mercy, his blessing and his curse, then let me beg you to look no further than Jesus' response to the disciples in John chapter 9. After the disciples ask Jesus this question, they say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Verse 3, Jesus answered, he says, no. Flips it on its head. It was not either of them that sinned. Jesus said, it's not that this man sinned or his parents. His parents didn't sin, but he was born blind is the implication, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It was not that this man sinned or his parents sinned. No one did anything wrong that caused the blind, this man to be born blind. He was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, you're missing the point. No one's sin caused this man to be born blind. We think back to the book of Job. Job's suffering and his loss was not due to his sin. Instead... Jesus claims in John chapter 9, 
This suffering has been ordained by God. It's been planned by God so that the magnificent radiance of his glory might be on display even in the midst of your suffering. I'm going to say that again because that's probably the most important thing you'll hear me say today, especially if you're suffering or if you're wrestling through past suffering. Your suffering has been ordained by God so that the magnificent radiance of his glory might be on display, even in the midst, especially actually in the midst of such intense and severe suffering. You see, God did not ordain Job's suffering because Job had done something wrong to deserve it. God did not ordain the man from John chapter 9 to be born blind because some sin that he or his parents had committed. God ordained for both of these things to take place so that he would be glorified in the midst of their suffering. God in his true sovereignty and true wisdom ordains suffering because he has a higher, more redemptive purpose in mind for your suffering. See, this is where Job's friends and the disciples, where they come in direct conflict with the ways of God. You see, the problem with with Job's friends and the disciples' understanding of suffering is that there is no way, there's no way for them to comprehend innocent suffering for the glory of God and the good of his people. And if that's the case, if there's no way to comprehend innocent suffering for the glory of God and the good of his people, if you tug on that thread a bit and you follow it out to its logical conclusion, then ultimately you end up with the thought that there's no room for the cross. In that understanding, in that worldview, there's no room for the cross. Think about what Eliphaz says in chapter 4, verse 7 of Job. He asks Job, he says, Job, who was innocent that ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? Well, on the one hand, Eliphaz, you're looking at a man who is innocent, who's suffering right in front of you. Already when he asks that question, it's being challenged in the moment. But in an even greater sense, in an even more redemptive sense, the innocent suffering that Job endured for the glory of God was a shadow, was a picture of the suffering that Christ would endure on the cross for the glory of God and the good of his people. You see, like Job, Jesus suffered severe bodily harm. Like Job, Jesus was the recipient of insult, of scorn, of mockery. Like Job, and even more so than Job, Jesus was sinless. He was without sin. Job was not without sin. Let me just put that caveat in there. Job Job was not perfect, but in this instance, he didn't do anything to earn God's favor. I feel like I need to put that caveat in there. Job is not ultimately sinless, but in this moment, he did not do anything to deserve his sin. He was innocent in that sense. Christ was wholly sinless. He was perfectly sinless. But unlike Job, Jesus' life was not spared. You see, God spared the life of Job. God told Satan, you can do whatever you want to with him, just spare his life. 
Christ, on the other hand, his life was not spared. Jesus, as Jesus hung on the cross, he faced something that Job could have never imagined facing. Throughout Job's trials and suffering, God was intimately with Job. Yet when Jesus hung on the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, Jesus is the truer and greater Job. Job's suffering was ordained by God for God's glory and Job's good. Christ's suffering, on the other hand, was ordained by God for Christ's glory and our good. So maybe you're here this morning and and, and maybe you're in in the midst of intense suffering. Life is crushing you right now. You're feeling crushed by the weight of everything that's going on in your life. Maybe you're here and you've just come out of a season of intense suffering or, or things have happened to you previously in your life and you're still reeling with anxiety and heartache and fear of those things. And maybe as you hear me preaching this morning in the back of your mind, you're thinking to yourself, Pastor Andrew, it's, it's easy for you to say that God ordains my suffering and God ordains my suffering for his glory and my good, but you don't know what I've been through. I've got 100,000 different questions and zero answers to them. Friend, if that is you, look no further than Christ. If that is you, look no further than Christ. Christ is the true and better Job. If you're suffering or you're reeling with suffering that's happened in the past, let the balm of the gospel be what soothes your weary soul. God has made a way for you to be reconciled back to him. We are broken people living in a broken world amidst a ton of different brokenness all around us. Yet even in the midst of our brokenness and the brokenness around us, God has ordained the suffering of his sinless son to die on the cross, to bear the weight of your sin and my sin on his shoulders so that we could receive his righteousness. Friend, if you are suffering today and you're apart from Christ, the answer is not try harder. The answer is not be better. The answer isn't found in the pleasures of this world. The answers aren't found in in self-help books or self-help teachers that are just going to tell you to try a little bit harder. Friends, don't try to fill the Christ-shaped hole in your heart with the things of this world. They will never satisfy you. Trust me, I've tried. Before coming to Christ, I tried in the midst of depression and suffering and anxiety. I tried to do everything under the sun like the writer of Ecclesiastes or Lamentations says, I tried to do everything under the sun, yet it didn't satisfy me. Friend, if that's you, if you're suffering, and you're apart from Christ today, look to the cross. Look to him for your hope. Look to Christ. Would you cry out to him today and look to him for your hope and your provision and your sustenance in the midst of your suffering? 
The Lord is sovereign over our suffering and he ordains it. He ordains for it to take place for his glory and our good. And I've said that a, a few different times this morning. That God is, God ordains our suffering for his glory and our good. I've said that and, and I need you to know, friends, that's not some spiritual euphemism. That's not, uh, that's not a pastoral band-aid that's somehow applied to your imaginary suffering. No, it's real. It's tangible. It's practical. God is glorified in your suffering. And your suffering has eternal ramifications that you cannot begin to imagine on this side of heaven. So let's unpack those really quickly. First, God uses your suffering to display his glory. God uses your suffering to display his glory. When, when we bestow the rightful praise and the rightful honor unto the Lord in the midst of our suffering, he's glorified. He receives glory. When I was four years old, I remember my mom's degenerative eye condition finally forced her into a very early retirement, and it declared her legally blind. She had to give up a career that she had worked really hard for. She was forced to, uh, to stop driving and, and, and was really kind of homebound in a lot of ways because she couldn't drive or get around nearly as well as she was able to before. Friendships that she had that were really close started to drift away. She had to rely on people in a significant manner. Her life drastically changed. And since then, I've watched my mom slowly lose her eyesight to the point now where it's less than 1% of what it originally was. And while I'm thankful for all the time that we had my mom at home while I was in school, when I was growing up, I'm thankful for the ways in which she showed me that she cared for me and loved me and my brother. I'm most thankful, especially as I've gotten older and I've understood what it means to wrestle with with suffering and, and, and anguish and grief, I'm most thankful for her displaying the glory of Christ in the midst of her suffering. Watching her ask hard questions, much like Job did, wrestle with difficult things, much like Job did, but all the while watching her cling to Christ in her suffering and see, that, and see Christ's glory on display in her life. That has been one of the greatest impacts she's had on my life. God is sovereign over your suffering. God's sovereign over my suffering. And he ordains it so that in its midst, your eyes would be drawn upward to Christ. The psalmist in Psalm 73, 26, he writes this. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The comforts and the joys of this world may forsake me. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Only Christ will be enough to truly satisfy us, to truly give us rest in the midst of suffering. Only he can really give us hope. Only he can give us the strength and the perseverance to endure. No matter how dark the night, no matter how stormy the trial, when you cling to Christ in your suffering and trust that he is the only one who can see you through, then the glory of God is on display in 
your suffering. Second, God uses your suffering for your good. God uses your suffering for your good. God has a purpose for your suffering. It could be the most comforting thing you hear me say today. There is a purpose and a plan and a reason for your suffering. It's not arbitrary and pointless. Nor is the Lord in heaven caught off guard and, and, and reeling back on his heels because you're suffering right now. The Lord uses suffering in our lives to sanctify us, to make us holy. He uses it to cut away any misplaced trust or hope that we may have in creation. And he, he causes us and he pushes us to place that hope in the creator. You've probably heard stories of, of Christians uh, throughout history who have, have suffered tremendously and yet you hear them uh, on the other side of it, their faith is strengthened and renewed, and they have a, a new zeal and hunger to know and love Christ. How can that be the case? What it, you, you would think it would be the opposite, right? You see, when worldly pleasures are stripped away, and the comforts of this life wither like the grass of the field... Then and only then are we able to see the goodness of Christ for all that he is. Because in that moment, he's all that we have. This is exactly what happened to Job. In Job 42, 5 and 6, Job comes to the ultimate conclusion. At the end of the book, he says, God, he's talking to the Lord now. He says, God, I, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. I had heard of you before, but now in the midst of all of this suffering, my eyes see you. John Piper says that Job's pain is not the pain of the executioner's whip, but the pain of the surgeon's scalpel. The removal of the disease of pride is the most loving thing that God could do, no matter what the cost. The Lord loves us too much for us not to see him for all that he is. And at times, he ordains our suffering so that we can have a clearer picture of the beauty and the majesty and the awe of Christ. The Lord is sovereign over your suffering and he ordains it for his glory and our good.